This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Episode 35. The Dublin Story Grand Slam Precious. Part 1. Hello, Grand Slammers! Welcome to the Dublin Story Slam podcast. My name is Julian and I am the producer of the Dublin Story Slam. And in this episode of the Dublin Story Slam, we're bringing you highlights from our most recent show. It was only a few weeks ago, back on stage at the Abbey Theatre. As you can hear from that little bit of opening thing, I'm just a ball of nerves practically screaming because I just can't contain the energy that is bubbling up inside me. We were looking forward to this show for such a long time. Originally, when we were going to host it, it was just before COVID, so nearly three years ago, and we had just sold out the round room in the mansion house, and then a week later, the entire country was on lockdown. So to say we were excited to get back on stage at the Abbey is a bit of an understatement. In this episode, you are going to hear part one, the first half of the Dublin Story Grand Slam show. But we're going to start uh, with a little brief story from our musical timekeeper. So along with Colm O'Regan, Sharon Mannion is our other regular host of the Story Slam. And Sharon first came to the Story Slam and told this story about, uh, I suppose, a conflicting relationship she had with the button accordion. So we thought, well, I mean, Sharon's already hosting the Story Slam, so why not invite her to take part in the Grand Slam fun as well and play the button accordion? So, uh, fair play to Sharon uh, for taking us up on the offer. So you're going to hear, first of all, from Sharon just when she was invited up on stage. And she had told the audience about the kind of tricky relationship she'd had with the button accordion when she began playing it as a child. So here is our musical timekeeper. After that, you're going to hear from Colm. Um, but here's first, here's Sharon. make it through without slipping off the keys. So it all came to a head one night. I entered this Rodori uh, musical competition, the solo musician category, and I was to play the Kerry Polka. 
and I froze like completely and utterly. A sound did come out. I don't know, was it from me or from the accordion? I've no idea. Something, and I just ran off stage and was devastated. And from then on, the accordion had me cursed, basically. It, uh, you're laughing, but it was quite traumatic. Um, uh, it broke up relationships. It lost me jobs. It followed me everywhere. Uh, and eventually, I actually wrote a show about it as a means to put these demons to bed. And I, I wrote this show, and I got through all of it, and I performed the last show of that uh, about four years ago, or three or four years ago, and was like, great. I never have to play the fucking accordion <laughs> ever again. Until I got a call from Julian. So now, in the interest of getting the show going, I cannot believe I'm going to do this. Um, oh, I really want you to lower your expectations. <laughs> I'm going to attempt, uh, if my sweaty palms allow, and they are sweating, I'm going to attempt to get through the Kerry polka to symbolize the beginning of the Grand Slam. Now, this may take a few attempts. This could be a bit like Father Ted. Hold it, hold it, wait, I can do this. But we'll give it a go, so here we go. That was Sharon Mannion, right? So now it was the turn for Colm O'Regan to join us on stage, who was wearing this incredible grey three-piece suit. I mean, he looked incredibly stylish and slick. Here is our host of the Dublin Story Grand Slam, Colm O'Regan. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that wonderful welcome for my suit, mainly. Uh, there's a human being inside this, and... I thought I'd get dressed up. The look I'm going for is a uh, lad back from Dubai at a wedding in 2008. Uh, that's the <laughs> telling people. I don't know why everybody's so depressed. Out in Dubai, they really go for it, you know. Uh, that's, that's where I'm headed. I've got an apartment in Bulgaria. I'm going to one of the Quinn's children's weddings and uh, <laughs> unaware of what's to befall me. That's what I'm rocking here now. Anyway, it is so wonderful to be back, as Julian said, after... The, it was March 16th, 2020 was supposed to be our last Grand Slam. I don't know whether that date rings a bell with anyone. You were, you were probably on your way off to Cheltenham going, fuck it, what's the worst that could happen? Uh, <laughs> uh, we have our slips of paper. People have been very good to fill out these. And uh, tell us about a precious thing you lost or found in 2022. Um, at the start of the year, I was dating a girl, nothing official, but had gone on a few dates. One day, she rang me to call it off. There was no hard feelings. A few days later, I realised I'd left my lovely new cosy winter hat at her place. Oh, things must have got hot and heavy at that one. Uh, <laughs> flung the hat. <laughs> this hat was class. Uh, bobble on the top, tassels on the sides. That's, that's how we like it. We like it. 
Sounds like um, some sort of country and western. I'm a bobble on the top and tassels on the side. I, but we're in tune. Um, I rang your one. She's your one now at this stage. Of the thing. I rang your one. Uh, to, by the way, for anybody visiting Ireland, that is just, I rang that person. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the most amazing things about Ireland is that you can, you can say to somebody, uh, yeah, I called into the other fella the other day, and everybody will know who you're talking about. Like, just, they don't, they'll know which is the other fella. Uh, I rang your one to ask for my hat back. No reply. I didn't push it. Good, good man. Uh, <laughs> a few more days later, I open Instagram only to see her and her new fella, and he was wearing my hat. Oh! I have recently bought a new hat. It's just, it's just not the same. Uh, now, he doesn't say whether the new hat has bobble on the top and tassels on the side, but uh, I feel you, I feel you, player. Um, that is. So, our first storyteller of the night. We'll give a huge welcome to Martin Hughes. Evening. So, uh, I really struggled with this uh, concept of uh, precious for tonight's show. So I went out and I got myself a focus, you know, a kind of a, a tunnel vision focus on what I'm doing here. So first thing was, uh, I'm going to focus on work. So I look back at some of the jobs I've had. I've had some crappy jobs over the years, but I've had some pretty cool ones as well. I was a bodyguard. I was an investigator. I was a security specialist. That's right. Not very precious there, but damn sexy, right? <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> so I followed that process all the way up to today. Uh, so as well as being an internationally renowned artist, part-time, I, I also work for Revenue. Oh. <laughs> Lost the room there, okay. Uh, nothing really precious about that, Chief. Well, unless you want to talk about uh, Colm's precious little tax returns or Julian's uh, precious little offshore account. You know, it's, uh, my kidding, lads. Um, no, no, I work for the sexy side of revenue. I work for customs. That's right. Story. Um, so I'm like Jack Nicholson, a few good men standing on that wall slash office desk, um, protecting the border while you sleep soundly in your beds. And you want me on that wall because you can't handle the fake toasters. <laughs> you can't. There's intellectual property rights. They burn your house down. They're very faulty. It's, it's not a good idea at all. So I went to my boss and said, it's OK if I tell a story about work. And she said, well, Martin, when you came here, you signed the State Secrets Act. So basically, if you open your mouth about us, we can legally have you killed. Then she left the room and never came back to say she was joking, so I thought, maybe I'll just move on to something else. And then I was thinking, well, I know. I'll tell a story about my sexual prowess. That's right. My wife tells me that I am a magnificent lover. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I can work with that. So when I was thinking about it, I came to realize that she only really says that when she's looking for me to do something. So she comes out of Sharon, she goes, hello, magnificent lover. <laughs> She'll be doing that, I don't know what it is. When, right? 
Hello, magnificent lover. <laughs> Shower drains blocked up. Any chance you could have a look at that for me? <laughs> so I began to wonder, so maybe that doesn't fit in with the true story aspect that's required for the story slam. Don't worry, I'm an excellent lover. Don't let the belly fool you. <laughs> so, <laughs> I listen, while we're here, by the way, ladies, um, we know that men doing housework is not sexy, okay? We know that it's just something you made up so you can spend the weekend sitting on a sofa watching Strictly come bake off or something like that. But then, to follow through with that whole charade, you get some good living at the end of the day. But so do we. And we'll do the housework anyway. So if you just said, hey, you, uh, do the housework tonight, by the time I'm finished with you, you'll be walking like a three-legged baby giraffe. 100% of men will go, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, we'll say. <laughs> so focus, process. I moved along and eventually I arrived at the story slam itself. I went, well, there's definitely something precious about that. So after a while I thought about it and I went, well, yeah, I already have my story. I know what I want to talk about. I know what's precious to me about that. And it's you. So you turn up month after month in the Sugar Club. And you buy your tickets, you sell the place out, you grab your beer, you grab your pizza, you sit down and you create this environment, you create a situation where people, ordinary everyday people, and some excellent lovers, can get up off their seats and come on the stage and tell their story. And you do that, you know, regardless. And it doesn't matter what the story is about. It can make you laugh, it can make you cry. It can be the best story you've ever heard. It could be Scarlet for your ma for having you. But you still applaud and you still support them and you still turn up. You keep giving and you keep going. It was you that got me to get up on the stage in the Sugar Club. It was you that got me on the stage here in the Abbey Frickin' Theatre, man. <laughs> yeah, it's all right, yeah, yeah. And, and what did you do then? Well, you turned up again and you bought your tickets and you Got your beer, there's no pizza here, it's a bit of a kip, say nothing. Uh, <laughs> and you keep on going and you keep on giving. And that was the precious story that I felt that I wanted to tell. So I first came to the Story Slam in 2017. I was wanting to practice my public speaking for a job I was trying to get. I didn't get the job, stupid sticker up your whole bastards. <laughs> um, but what I did get was this kind of extended family of like-minded individuals who turned up every month and supported each other and encouraged each other and egged each other on and had a brilliant time doing it. And I was hooked from day one and that's it. So on behalf of the hundreds and hundreds of people who have stood behind this microphone in the Sugar Club and here in the Abbey Theatre and the thousands more I know will follow because of what you do and what you give, I just want to say thank you Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, Martin, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Martin. A lovely tribute to the Story Slam. We'll probably put you on it when, when we get big enough to make one of these um, tourism board ads where like, there'll be a drone flying over the cliffs of Moher. We'll get Martin to say that very thing uh, as voiceover. It was beautiful. Thank you very much. Okay, second storyteller of the night. 
Uh, and once again, they're waiting in the wings, so give them a warm welcome so that they get to the stage with the applause still going and ringing in their ears. Give a huge welcome to Michelle Lucy. Michelle Lucy. Be there now. Okay. All right. Great show, it was good. Thank you. Um, so when I was little, I uh, lived in my imagination the whole time. I either had my nose stuck in a book or I'd be following my mum around Super Value as she did the food shop and pretending that the mustard was trying to kill me. And I'd be doing both of the voices for both me and the mustard. And... To everyone else, it probably looked a bit mad, but someone that um, always supported that side of me was a woman called Flo, and Flo was our minder. So we'd go to her every day after school, and she would notoriously make these man-sized portion bowls of Irish stew that she was determined to make us all eat, even though we were like seven and eight. <laughs> and she was like, I want to see the bottom of that plate now. We're going to call the guards. All the usual stuff. <laughs> I think everyone's nanny did that at some stage. Um, so we would... She was always full of uh, fun and imagination herself in her own right. And uh, she'd tell stories out of the most kind of insignificant everyday things that we would take for granted. So she, you know, we'd get off the bus after being in town all day and uh, she'd spot two magpies sitting on a phone line and she'd go, Janie, they followed us all the way here. Weren't they very good? Do you know what? I think they got a lift on the bus. They were probably on the roof the whole time. And then us as kids would just be so caught by that and we'd talk about where the magpies were going next and if they were going to get cherries on their way home and stuff like that. Um, and she always had that sense of imagination. I suppose then when I was seven, uh, my life got a little bit more complicated. Uh, there was one day, uh, mom kind of announced that she was taking us for a drive, me and my brother Paul. And it was kind of weird because she was quiet, she wasn't talking and she was crying. I didn't really understand why. And then she parked into a park nearby and uh, got into the back with me and my brother and put an arm around each of us and uh, told us through tears that her and dad were getting divorced. Now, I didn't know what that meant really at the time. I was only seven, but I knew it wasn't something good. Now, looking back at it retrospectively, I know that that was a day that very much changed my whole life. Um, it, the whole process afterwards was it took about 10 years to take get the divorce um it was very tough and very it was a very um intense and sad time um and i suppose what it did to me was that it made me quite cynical i lost my sense of play and my imagination quite quickly cuz it didn't seem like useful when I realised or had experienced the world to be so mean and nasty and cruel. It's like, what use was imagination and play if I knew that the world wasn't nice anymore? I'd also, during that time, <laughs> um, learned how to distrust adults and I didn't really think that they were out to protect me anymore. So it was kind of tough, but the person that was there through the whole thing was Flo. 
every day after school, going to see her and um, having those mahoosive bowls of stew. Mm. Every day was uh, a comfort because it was steady and it was consistent. So that was amazing. Um, and then I suppose skip forward to when I was 15. I was still going to flows. And I was quite cynical and cool and full of uh, teenagery angst as well. Um, and we had had our bowls of stew and Flo had given us um, lollipops for dessert. And I was kind of the oldest of the kids that she minded, so I went around and collected all the lollipop sticks after the kids were done. I was about to put them in the bin and Flo went, oh no, don't throw them out just yet. And I was like, oh, why? She's like, um, come down to the garden with me and I'll show you. So we gathered all the kids and went down to the bottom of the garden and there was this big red flower pot that I hadn't seen before. And it was filled with uh, fresh soil, which had clearly been bought like the day before. I was like, what is this? And then she got all of us, she said, okay, so now each one of you need to plant your lollipop stick in the soil. And I was like, what? <laughs> Now, cynical, angsty, teenager, moody, not trusting you, I was thinking, I'm not doing that. That's, no, that's not cool. But the kids were there. So I was like, no, I'll do it for the kids. So that's, yeah, I'll do it for, yeah, I'll do it for the kids. I'm not doing it. I'm not really doing it. Doing it for them. So uh, they were planting the lollipop sticks. And what I remember about that is not that they were planting lollipop sticks, but that I, my attention was totally on flow. I was like looking at her and I couldn't take my attention off her because I was waiting for her to give me the knowing nod or the knowing wink to say, you and me both know this isn't real. You and me both know that the, nothing's going to happen and this is just for the kids. But she never did. And I was always kind of a little frustrated by that because it wasn't in keeping with my idea of adults weren't trustworthy or adults weren't able to imagine or play. But she held steadfast to it. So we went away, forgot about it the next day, came back, had our stew, and as coy and as sly as anything, Flo, just out of the corner of her eye, looks in as, God, I wonder if those lollipops have grown yet. And then all of the kids hear this and they go berserk. And they're like, oh my God, the lollipops. And I <laughs> leg it down to the bottom of the garden, down to the flower pot. And I remember I just kind of sauntered real coolly behind them, like not wanting to commit or get excited. And sure enough, when I got down to the pot, there were about 10 new, bright, colorful, beautiful lollipops sticking out of the soil. And it was like, I remember that moment just being kind of flooring me, not because of lollipops were growing out of the soil, which, by the way, Flo will take to her grave that she had nothing to do with that. <laughs> nothing. It wasn't her. It was magic. Um, and I remember it was so significant because um, here was an adult who I loved and cared for me was having imagination and fun and play, even though she knows and I know that the world isn't fair or nice and it's cruel, but she chooses to play and imagine anyway. 
and also that here was an adult that hadn't let me down. And it was so significant to me um, and still is such a significant moment because now uh, I play professionally. <laughs> I'm an actor and writer and director, so that's amazing. Uh, but also, like, I think it's more significant for me because of the day-to-day -day lesson that I hold dear for it. Is like I play with my four-year-old four cousin, uh, Juliet, and like when I play, I play. I'm like octopus on the ground, I'm a mountain, I'm a pirate, I'm whatever you need me to be, and I'm that until like someone says the stew is ready. You know, it's just, it's so important to me to play with like that, like flow. Um, and she definitely taught me the magic that you can see in every day if you choose to see it. Even to believe that lollipops can grow from the ground. I do, because I've seen it. <laughs> Thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Michelle Lucy there. Uh, just checking, Michelle, what kind of sticks were these? Just want to get that, want to get that right. Uh, that was brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, I, I, I still struggle with chopper chops, though, getting the wrapper off a chopper chop. Uh, if, if anybody knows quite how to do that without using your teeth, do let me know. Um, particularly when there's a child screaming for it and need the chopper chop now. Anyway, that's fine. So uh, let's go and do one, one, long, uh, one, one long slip of paper. In February 2022, I lost my dignity when I was reported missing by my parents when I had a one-night stand. <laughs> so. so no, I left the club with a handsome man, uh, noted. I left the club with a handsome man and promised my friend 
I'd share my location. I was robbed. Phone and wallet uh, were taken. So this was the last person to see me that night, leaving with a stranger. The person that stole my phone called my parents, pretending to be the guards in Ranala. FYI, there is no guard station in Ranala. <laughs> my parents copped this and knew the call from my number was a hoax. They rang my aunt. Uh, this is not a, not a character, not a character brought in. <laughs> they rang my aunt, who lives in Dublin, to check if I was home and okay, as they had rung my friend who told me that I had left to go home hours before. FYI, I hadn't. I was still with the handsome man. Um, <laughs> my aunt visited my house. I wasn't there, and housemates confirmed it was out of character. Uh, <laughs> now, so clearly, getting no action all year. Uh, <laughs> Her? No, she'll be home. She'll be home. Here, so I'm assuming it's a she. It could be he. Uh, I was then reported missing. A few hours later, I returned home okay and had to uh, divulge to my mum, dad, aunt, guards, friend, housemates and siblings <laughs> that I simply had a one-night stand, uh, all while very hungover. Um, I had to review CCTV of the phone going missing, meaning we had to watch my one-night stand progressing. Uh, <laughs> This is the, pre, the early stage, now, not the... Of, of course, the guard was a 10 out of 10. Um, I actually don't know what that means, whether the guard was sound or hot. I'm not sure. Uh, in 2022, dignity was lost, but the wallet was found. The thief was part of a big group. They're now in prison. Uh, that's a heart, heartwarming tale of the justice system worked. Uh, yeah. Right, let us go now. Start Storyteller of the Night. Waiting in the wings, welcome to stage, Daisy McCarthy. Um, so this is a story about how much more survivable life is when you bring people on board as opposed to try to do things on your own. Um, I'm really good at doing stuff on my own. I just decide on a goal and I roll up my sleeves and do the work until I can tick it off my box. <laughs> tick. Anyway, you know what I mean. Anyway, um, uh, and so um, a couple of years ago, I had worked myself into a stable situation in life and with work and financially that I was finally able to do something that I had wanted to do for an awful long time, which is to start a family. Um, and this is another thing that I thought I could do on my own. Now, I wasn't like banking on an immaculate conception, um, but I thought it would be an in-house job. Um, and uh, with uh, uh, my husband. Um, and, uh, and it actually coincidentally um, timed with the onset of a global pandemic when the government um, asked us to stay indoors and ride it out. So, so that was handy. Um, uh, so that we did. Um, but months went by um, and, and nothing happened. Months and months. And um, it was a time of uh, a kind of an overwhelming news cycle and doom scrolling. And I also, alongside this, found another corner of the internet. Um, which you might be lucky enough to have no awareness of, which is the Mumsnet forums, um, which has an awful lot of, of bad science and more abbreviations than the periodic table. 
Um, and what's funny about this is that I uh, actually, during this time, was what you would call a frontline worker. Um, in fact, I was the subset of frontline worker that was um, looking in people's mouths all day. So maskless mouths breathing on me um, <laughs> all day long. And I lost not a wink of sleep worrying about the COVID fumes or air or whatever, because I was just doing my job. But I lost nights just obsessing in this cesspit of the forums, trying to do scroll, 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 to try to find the um, seemingly impossible answer of, of how to get pregnant. Something which um, half my friends were doing very easily um, with all of the, the WhatsApp scans coming in and I was I was embarrassed that I was so focused on this at a time of you know global panic and I was also ashamed that my body couldn't do it um, and anyway one 3 a.m night I found a clinic on the other side of the city that via acupuncture and reflexology promised um, that they were like a mecca for hopeless cases and so I went there um, and sure enough, the lady at the assessment said, all, so all you have to do is give up um, sugar and alcohol and dairy and gluten and hope and, and joy. Um, and three months time, we will have you up the duff. And she said, just, just one, one last thing, if you could just pull down your mask and show us your tongue. And so I did, and she kind of winced, and she said, sorry, did I say three months? I meant six. Um, you have a damp tongue. <laughs> I had no idea what this meant, but she was so confident that I became a full-blown disciple. And I, um, I followed her recommendations every, to down to the full stop. Um, and it became obvious um, to people, it became very obvious to my parents when I had them over for dinner and offered them avocado mousse for dessert with a kind of a rictus grin. This is just something new I'm trying. Um, and, and they're actually both medical professionals and they knew I was trying and they're like, Daisy, look, we'll help you find a clinic. It'll, it'll be all fine. You can go to a doctor. I was like, no, no. No, no. Everything is under control. It's going wonderfully. Um, and so uh, that long, bleak COVID winter went by and um, and it was not going wonderfully. Um, I got reports that my damp tongue was not drying up. Um, and I was, uh, I was getting like, there was one specific evening when I was driving and letting all my hopeless emotions out, driving home one February um, in like 21. And I saw a guard at checkpoint up ahead and I thought, oh God, he's going to ask why I'm here. And I was like, there was that moment where I was like, do I stick out my tongue and show him? <laughs> or, do, or do I tell him about my infertility? And and I knew, even in my madness, that the poor guard was not being paid enough for either of these. <laughs> so something had to change. Um, and so first of all, I thought the easiest thing is just to not want this. I mean, Jesus Christ, like this is, uh, it's an unhappy life choice, you know? So I really focused on 
and we all know them. You know those children that are like walking, talking contraception ads, you know? Um, and, and the pandemic parents who were like just a click away from putting said children on done deal. And I was like, I, you know, but, and I tried not to want it, but I, I really, I still did. And then I happened upon um, a lady called Spencer Brassard, who had a podcast, and what was, um, and she had been trying to conceive for eight years. And what was unusual about her was that she was not suffering or unhappy. Um, and so I inhaled her podcasts when I was walking the dogs. And it, it, her philosophy came down to, to these things. It was. Um, do as much as you can of things that make you feel good and stay the hell away from things and people who make you feel bad and trust your gut to, to know the difference. Um, and so I said goodbye to the damp tongue brigade um, and I went to an actual uh, fertility doctor with a balanced calm plan. Um, and... Um, and I also, when friends um, started, were asking me, as they had been, how, that very triggering question, how are you? Um, I would answer for the first time in a long time, honestly. And, and then suddenly this source of shame became much smaller. And also, they actually, it turned out that mm, every second person has their own story of a struggle or, or a difficulty that shared, and that was helpful. Um, and so the months went by, um, and with the help of some medication, there was a positive test. Um, uh, however, there was uh, the, the scan did not have a heartbeat, the early scan. And so I remembered from Spencer going through something similar. She said, it's not alone okay, but it's actually important to acknowledge a loss even if no one else can see it um, or know about it. Um, and so as small as this soul was, just a grain of rice, um, we wanted my husband and I to mark it. So we went down to the 40 foot with, with rice in our hands and jumped in and said goodbye and thank you to the little one for being with us and released it to the waves. And I knew I needed to step back. So um, I uh, went on holidays for, you know, just step back from the whole thing. And I went to every gig in Vicker Street for like four months. Um, and then I also started working less intense hours because just because you're not reproductive doesn't mean you have to be punishingly productive. Um, uh, and then this spring, um, I had, uh, I was talking with a friend who had successfully done IVF and I was saying, oh, you know, I'm thinking about options. And she said, you know, Daisy, you can do this. You can absolutely do it. And I'm here. And if you have any questions, I'll answer them and I have your back. And so I went to the doctor who said the exact same thing. And within six weeks, we had a handful of embryos and they, they put two in. And this time, after an agonizing, agonizing wait, there was one really strong, lovely heartbeat. Um, and I sent the video to my parents and my dad uh, called me up and he said, I'm so happy for you. And would you mind, is it okay if we say a prayer for the embryo who made it and the one who didn't? Um, and I didn't know how much I needed that um, uh, until we were both saying the Our Father down the phone together. 
Um, and, uh, and then as the milestones and weeks went and it was all looking good, I slowly told some friends. And this time I did know what I needed. And I said, um, this is happening, but I only feel strong enough um, and brave enough to focus on feeling calm. And I feel this little baby deserves more. So could you hold my excitement and hope? Um, and they did that so beautifully. And, and this little dancer, tiny dancer inside me, is, is very, very precious. Um, but equally precious to me is every single individual professional family friend who um, stepped forward when I stood in front of them with my hands out saying, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. Can you help? Um, I, I don't know anything about parenting, but I know we'll be okay um, because I've heard it takes a village and I'm very, very grateful for mine. Thank you. Daisy McCarthy there. That, oh, thank you very much, Daisy. That was, that was lovely. And I have loads of advice for you. I will tell you all about it afterwards. Uh, what you shouldn't do now, you know, all that kind of thing. No, we won't. We leave her alone. Leave her be. Leave her be. That was lovely. And uh, I, I'm delighted to see the outcome. And also tribute to all the people she paid tribute to as well, too. Thank you very much, Daisy. Uh, staying with the idea of uh, family, uh, tell us about a precious thing you've lost or found. I have found my two sons again. They returned to Ireland from different parts of the world, uh, partly prompted by COVID. As a result, we have the joy of sharing their lives and social outings such as tonight. Uh, even more, we will also have the joy of the company of their relatively new partners. Uh, so, I like them. relatively new on the scene now. I like them. Oh, <laughs> I don't, I, for some reason, I read that sentence in a kind of a classic Irish parent. <laughs> well, anyway, you're all very welcome. Uh, par pa um, parents, children, and relatively new pa partners. May you be. Permanently relative. <laughs> so, our final storyteller before the break, and uh, it's been a lovely half so far, and we're delighted to welcome on stage Emma Lynch. Welcome, Emma Lynch. So, and one of the last sunny days of September in 2019, I was trekking across town with waterproof boots and a jacket and my hiking pack, which was full of 48 liters worth of base layers and foul weather gear. I had taken an extended leave of absence from work and I was headed to Dunleary to spend the next four months on a sailboat in the Irish Sea. And when I arrived at the marina, I met the four men who were going to be my new housemates and got a tour of our new home, which was a 37-foot, 11-meter boat uh, with three cabins, and small cabins, and a folding table that revealed two other spots to sleep in. And we sat down around the table and uh, our instructor went over what we were signing up for again. And it was the Yachtmaster Offshore Professional Course, four months of uh, sailing exercises, uh, 
navigation courses, weather safety courses, and 2,500 nautical miles of offshore sailing, which would all culminate in a two-day on-boat exam in the middle of December. And then we started going around talking about you know, what, what we wanted to get out of the course. And every single one of the, the men on board said they wanted to work in the sailing industry. And when it got to me, I panicked and I said something about, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll you know, I want, to, I want to work in the sailing industry. I, I just love sailing and I, I wanted a challenge. But the real reason was because I had hit a wall in my personal life outside. I had spent the last two years uh, dealing with, or I guess avoiding, the uh, grief of my mother's passing. And I had thrown myself into work. I'd shut out all the things that reminded me of her. And as a result, I had become burnt out. Uh, I felt powerless. Uh, useless as a, a friend and a partner, and I needed something to bring me back to that, that sense of who she was, the part of me that was, that was tied to her, the sense of adventure and the wild spirit that I had been avoiding because it reminded me so much of her. So I decided that the right thing to do was to take on this professional yacht master course just to uh, you know, sh shock myself back into reality. And, uh, and so I took it on. And I didn't tell anybody on board you know, what, what I was there to do to try to recover this, this part of myself that I had lost. Uh, and it was OK. I didn't think, you know, I didn't think it would come up. So I went forward into the next, uh, the next couple of months. Um, and they were fine. It didn't come up for a while. Uh, we were just you know, tooling around Dublin Bay, going up and down the coast. And I was having a great time. And I was loving sailing. But there was this thing in the back of my head about what we were going to have to do towards the end the Mile Builders, which was 500 miles. It was four one-week-long um, passages where we'd sail through the night uh, to try to get up the amount of miles we needed to qualify as skippers for the exam. And this really, this really kind of spooked me, because there's one little thing about my love of sailing that was a problem, uh, which is that I tend to get a little bit seasick. <laughs> And, oh, man, did I get sick. See, the winter, the winter had set in, and we were getting loads of easterly winds. And because the weather was getting worse, we were running across to Wales and then back to Arklow. And we were just doing these constant passages. And something about the way those short, kind of choppy waves hit always, like clockwork, set me off at about three hours in on the passage to Wales. I'd be chucking up breakfast. And then it would stay that way for days. And I, had, I was bouncing back and forth between trimming sails and leaning over the, the rails and throwing up. And I felt utterly useless. 
And as the days were getting short, shorter, the night watch got worse. And we would be two hours on, two hours off, and I'd wake up with my alarm, and I'd pour myself in to my foul weather gear, uh, trying to balance and feeling weak. And I would always grab this steadfast companion of a bailing bucket. And I'd go up on deck, and I'd sit there at 3 AM, scanning the darkness, looking for shifts when my head wasn't in the bucket, <laughs> and just wondering what the hell I was thinking and what I was doing there. And at one of the stopover anchorages, we, as we approached it, I had been particularly sick on this passage. And so I decided that, uh, you know, as we were passing through, I was, I was going to rinse out my precious bucket. And uh, I, I leaned over the side, and I, I had a rope tied to it. And I, I sat, like, I didn't tie it off. I didn't think I was underestimating uh, my weakness. And it filled with water and ripped out of my hands and slipped behind us. And our instructor noticed and he, he was a skipper on, on round-the-world races. He'd been in the Southern Ocean. So he saw a teachable moment, and he yelled, man overboard. And as we'd been taught to do, we, we whipped round, we brought the boat round, and he shouted, who has eyes on him? Who has eyes on him? And everybody looked at me, and I realized I didn't. I'd lost it. And the instructor turned to me and said, that's how quick you can lose a man out there. And it suddenly hit me of the, the sort of the dangerous situation that I'd put myself in and that I felt that I was, I was useless to my crew. And that night I thought about ways I could quit, excuses I could, I could use. But by the time I was starting to try to think of an excuse, we got to the next Mile Builder passage and I hadn't thought of a good excuse yet, so I showed up. And I downed the studeron and the, the, the ginger chews and strapped a pressure point bracelet to each wrist, and I was going to white-knuckle it through and get my skipper miles on this passage. And three hours in, I was sick. But uh, something happened on, on the way where the wind picked up, and it shifted directions. And it started howling, and it was near gales. And I felt great. And my watch was starting, and, and the, the relief of not being seasick anymore, I, I rushed on deck to relieve the, the crew uh, who were on deck before me. And I realized that though we were supposed to be approaching the Isle of Man, we couldn't see it, because there was a dark cloud hanging over it. And it was just impossible to see the actual land. And I realized that there was a squall coming right at the start of my watch. So I told the crew, I knew we were going to go from near gales to gales, and there's rain expected. And I told the crew to, to reef the sails so we'd reduce our, our surface area so we weren't as exposed, and to, and to lock down the, the cabin below. And they went down. And then seconds after they were down there, the wind picked up. The rain started and the hail set in. And I was shouting down uh, our bearings to get course corrections. And, I, and the, it was just absolutely miserable weather out there. 
and the, uh, the crew were handing me up gloves. I soaked through every single pair of gloves on that, on that boat, and I was absolutely loving it. <laughs> I stayed at the helm around the island. Uh, I, I skippered all the way down to Hollyhead in Wales, and when I stepped off the boat, finally, I went to get a shower, and I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror in the locker room, and my hair was absolutely wild, and I was, uh, at some point, I had burst a blood vessel in my, in my eye, and <laughs> nobody told me. Um, so I had all this blood in there, and, uh, and I, I looked at myself, and I just thought, I look absolutely wild, and I haven't lost her. She's in there somewhere, and I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep moving forward. Thank you. That was great. Emma Lynch there. Thank you very much, Emma. That was brilliant. Well done. And that was the first half, pretty much as it unfolded on stage at the Abbey Theatre this, at this year's Grand Slam. Uh, don't be going anywhere, though, because there's another part two coming up with more fantastic stories. Three more storytellers uh, in the second half, so it's going to be exciting. It's going to go to the wire. Uh, one last round of applause for all the storytellers in the first half. Martin, Michelle, Daisy and Emma See you in a little while. Thank you very much. So you should be able to find that episode wherever you're listening to this, The Dublin Story Grand Slam Part 2. Thanks a million for listening to this. If you liked it, please do leave us a review or a thumbs up or whatever you can do to kind of show us that, that you're out there and listening. We would love to hear from you. Thanks a million. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And we'll see you on the next episode, which is pretty much right now. Part two of the Dublin Story Grand Slam. Right? See ya. Bye. (laughs) 